and welcome back to another episode of Code with Kingy where we are previewing round three of Super Rugby Aotearoa and this week I have the pleasure of chopping it up with one of the best modern day rugby scribes in New Zealand and Adam Julian. Enjoy. Namahi Adam and thank you very much for joining me on Code with Kingy once again. Um, I've been meaning to get you on this year, I mean you're always a good time so yeah big ups to you for taking me up on jumping on again. A happy new year to you uh, Jordan and everybody Listening, I've got to say, that was a terrific program you had the other day with uh, Vince Arso. Vince Arso in the Hurricanes Hunters at the moment, scored a try in a game that they won a couple of weeks ago against a regional 15. Very underrated footballer, Vince Arso. He played 16 of 18 games when they won the Super Rugby title in 2016. And I had the good privilege of bumping into him at the tote after the Wellington Cup races. He'd won a lot of money. And he was very good company. Vince Arso, one of the good guys in the Hurricanes. Yeah, 100%. He was um, yeah, quite forthcoming. I mean, he, he was obviously shy, like as a lot of people would have picked up in the interview. But yeah, I was very, very grateful that he opened up a little bit towards the end of it and spoke about the troubles that he had with his injuries. And yeah, unfortunately, he's sort of been um, the victim of, you know, he was the man in 2017 with all his tries that he scored. But, you know, with all the injuries that he's gone through and then, you know, the likes of Nani... Peter Umunga Jensen, and then your outside backs like your Ben Lambs, and now you're seeing Julian come back, Rayasi, Wes Houston. He's sort of like been thrown out of the mix, and it's in like and considering how well that Hurricanes backline has flied the last couple of years, yeah, you can find yourself pretty hard done by to try and fit your way back in, unless there is an injury. So, yeah, I, ho- I hope he at least gets to um, make some sort of appearance in Super Rugby Aotearoa because, like you mentioned, he is a great player, but. And at the same time, I mean, if the Hurricanes don't um, get their act together very soon, maybe there will be a need for change. So I think on that note, why don't I throw the mic back over to you and get your perspective of the first two weeks of Super Rugby Aotearoa. Well, from a Hurricanes perspective, we won the first 20 minutes in the second half, so we're a third of the way there. Two losses to start the season last year came roaring back with the five wins. But alarmingly, Jordan, the Hurricanes certainly don't appear to be as competitive as their 2020 roster, even in those losses that they had first up last year, they were far more competitive games. The first match at Eden Park against the Blues turned rapidly in the second half, and in the loss against the Crusaders, it was 25 all with about 15 minutes to go before the Crusaders galloped away with that one. In the first uh, fortnight of the season for the Hurricanes, you always got the impression against the Blues that with the leaky scrum, they were going to succumb, and ultimately that happened with Rico Ioane sprinting away at the end there and a very controlled performance from O'Terry Black. That was another one of your terrific programmes with O'Terry Black. He's been one of my highlights of uh, Super Rugby in the last uh, six months. Very poised player, dead-eye goal kicker, and an underrated performer, O'Terry Black. And then uh, last week against the Crusaders, what a bizarre match, 6 0 after 20 minutes, the Hurricanes all over the Crusaders. The ball bounces the opposite direction after Adi Sevier's break. The Hurricanes potentially score a try. And then Garden Bashup dashing away, only to be reined in right at the end. The Hurricanes could have been up 20-0. 20-0. And then 
Artie Severe gets yellow carded, and really Severe has become such a talisman, Jordan, that surely he's the next All Black captain. And when he departed, it was almost like the heart of the Hurricanes was ripped out in front of them and stomped on by carcasses of the Crusaders. Three tries in 10 minutes, the game was over. Now, I'm hardly one to give advice to people sprinting 60 metres, but I did feel sorry for some of the backlash that Garden Bashup received for not scoring that try. But Justin Marshall raised a valid point, and that was that he turned his head back to look at the defence running after him three times. Now, I remember in year nine for Z class at St Pat's Silverstream, we had Rob Tungat, who was an old police sergeant, and he told us whether we were running the 100 metres or the 1500 metres, whatever you do, don't look behind you. And I put my hand up. I said, well, that's not going to be a problem for me, sir, because I'm always chasing. I guess the thing that I'd add to that is what you'll find with a lot of guys is that, like you said, they can sort of feel that cover breathing down their neck. And so they look to turn to maybe use a bit of footwork or like stick out a fin. But your momentum's traveling forward and to actually like turn around and push backwards, it's actually a skill in itself. And you only really see it with the likes of, you know, like your severes and, you know, whoever else has been known to have that power game. But yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm, I think I, I'm the other. Gonna, yeah, I was going to say, I'm not going to throw any shade at him because like, I've been in that position and, you know, no no offence to Jackson, but he's hardly ever been put in that position where he's catching the ball and he's having to outpace a lot of wingers, um, I don't think. <laughs> so it's just like, fuck, like, I, I can empathise with him, the fact that, you know, he did panic. So, Well, the only difference between you and Bashup was the fact that you were reined in by the loose head prop. With uh, Garden Bashup, he showed a lack of confidence, though, by not uh, backing himself to go all the way. This was a guy I remember watching at Scott's uh, College and he could run 100 metres in just under 11 seconds. So he is extremely quick. And for him not to back himself uh, perhaps is indicative of a lack of self-confidence both on his behalf and also within the Hurricanes. A lot of those Hurricanes at the moment not playing with the same authority as they did last year. I thought it was quite uh, telling the statistics regarding the battle between Tom Christie and Duplessis Karifi. Uh, Christie really looks like Herman from the Munsters, made 19 tackles in that game. And I thought completely outplayed uh, Karifi, who is an all-black in waiting and has started the season a bit slowly. He was yellow-carded in that first game. And there's a couple of the Hurricanes who have just been a little bit underwhelming in the first few rounds and unfortunately it's a short competition and if you don't hit the ground running then you find yourself in a pickle pretty quickly. I think as well as that um, you know, you're building off what you've just mentioned in terms of none of those boys really sticking their hand up besides the likes of Artie Sevilla is the loss of a Safwa Moore. Now I thought that he was you know probably one of the the highlights from last week's win, uh, loss against the Blues and, you know, he, he just seemed to have a bit more confidence about him this, you know, this year in 2021. But he's gone down with a shoulder injury. And fortunately, from the reading I've done today, he's not going to be out like what a lot of people expected in terms of it being a long-term injury. But, yeah, uh, I'm not sure where that well, Hurricanes that... four-pack turns to, especially with someone like Coles coming back from a leg injury. So he's not going to be able to play the full 80. And so for me, when I look across the rest of that forward pack, besides Sevilla, who can't really get stuck into the dirty stuff now because he is the skipper, it's like, well, where does that punch come from? 
That's a very good point, uh, Jordan. Uh, Safa Moore's display against the Blues was his best game for the Hurricanes by a mile. Two tries. The line-out throwing was spotless. And Asafo showcased the kind of form which made him such a sensation when he got into the All Blacks for the first time. Asafo Amua was dragged in that game, though, strangely, in the 67th minute. And one of the curiosities of Super Rugby in the early stages of the competition seems to be the way in which substitutions are employed. Now, I understand it's a long, tough season and minutes are managed these days, but why would you take your most obvious threat off with 13 minutes to go when the score's 21-16. Yeah, obviously like the coaches have learned off the back of last year's competition where there was such a high attrition rate that maybe they are looking to manage the minutes. But like you said again, like wins are very hard to come by in this competition. And if you're going to take off you know, arguably your second best forward, yeah, when the game's still in the balance, um, yeah, I'm not sure, yeah, like you, whether I would have agreed with that substitution. But, yeah, I mean, like, fingers crossed the Hurricanes can turn the show around like they did last year. Unfortunately, they're going to be playing the Chiefs, who I'm predicting aren't going to go that well on Friday night. But, yeah, why what, what, what don't we use that um, to, to jump into to Saturday night's game where the Chiefs travel down to the Garden City, Christchurch, to take on the Crusaders? And, I mean, I've made a point here that if you actually looked at the games... You can make the argument that both sides only really played half an hour's worth of quality football. So with that, I mean the Crusaders only really turned it on in the back end of that second half and the first 10 minutes of the um, second half. And then with the Chiefs, I mean, they looked the goods for the first half an hour of their game, but then everything just sort of capitulated when um, old mate Jonah Nariki uh, pounced onto that charge down. So I guess starting with the, the Crusaders, considering that they have won their last two games in a row, I mean, are you more impressed with the champions, their ability to be so clinical and capitalise on their opportunities, or are you more so disheartened um, by their opposition's output? It was uh, similar in the first round for the Crusaders too, Jordan. They started very strongly, up 14-0 against the Highlanders, and then the Highlanders pretty much controlled possession and territory for the rest of that game. Remember, C.O. Tonkinson was denied a try, contentiously perhaps, there was a knock-on in the ruck beforehand, the ball was grounded by the Crusaders in the in-goal area, which meant a 22 dropout. 19-13, about 15 minutes to go, the Highlanders kicked the ball back aimlessly half a dozen times, and then the moment they choose to run it, it's a one-on-three isolation situation inside their own half. Isolation situation sounds like something the Prime Minister would say at the moment. Anyhow, uh, the Crusaders got the turnover, and then kicked the ball into the Highlanders' territory and scored a try. And it is very impressive the way that the Crusaders are able to absorb pressure and then pounce so quickly on attack. Cody Taylor, he's just on fire this season. He's really become the alpha male in the number two jersey and he tore up the Hurricanes a couple of times. And Sebi Reese and Jack Goodhue are players of immense quality. So they have the temperament, confidence and class to execute when required. And really, that Highlanders situation where they kick the ball back to the Crusaders half a dozen times, that's entirely mental. If they're playing the Chiefs or the Hurricanes, there's a possibility they might not do that. But against the Crusaders, the formidable defending champions, your mentality can change. And... That they punish you if you're uh, tentative. 
Yeah, I, I guess on that Crusaders, I was, I was making the point uh, in the recap podcast that I did with Nick Higgity uh, last night that he was he's an advocate for when you're playing the Crusaders, just like when you play the All Blacks, you're better off trying to beat them by scoring tries because you know that inevitably the All Blacks are going to find their way at some point in the match. Um, and so like you said, I think that the Highlanders sort of fell into that trap where they were playing almost negatively because they didn't want to be pinned inside their own half or, or run the risk of turning it over in their own half. And they tried to force the Crusaders' hand by making them either make a mistake or have them try and run it out. Um, but unfortunately, like we've seen the last two weeks in a row, the Crusaders can hurt you from anywhere. Uh, and it, it is such a it's such an annoying thing for me to watch as someone who isn't the biggest fan of the Crusaders because it's like, on one hand, you do have to tip your hat because it's like, fuck, these buggers are good. But at the same time, and yeah, it's just like, it's it's so annoying because like, even, like it doesn't even go both ways with them. Like they are so good defensively, and then on attack, all they need is just like the right bounce of the ball. And I mean, like look at what happened with um, even Will Jordan's try that got disallowed. Or you know, I know that he knocked it on, but the Hurricanes look hot on attack. They get inside the Crusaders' half. Rayasi's with a bit of a loose carry, strip, kick, and then who, who else pops up but Will Jordan? You know, it's just that sort of stuff that only the Crusaders are capable of. And um, as much as I'd like to see the Blues contend with them, and for me, they are probably the only super team that has the squad to compete with them. Um, but even then, I just think the Crusaders, like you said, with their with their class, their temperament, and their experience, I just think they're on a whole nother level to the other four sides. I agree with that. And one thing that has always separated the Crusaders from the rest is their total absence of rock star mentality. And what I mean by that is I had the good fortune of uh, touring the Crusaders uh, several years ago. I was taken round by Dave McLennan, terrific guy. He's in the player recruitment business down there. And at Rugby Park in uh, Christchurch, underneath the grandstand, they have a display board which lists every single Crusader. And beside each Crusader is a sword and that denotes if they've won a Super Rugby title. And before Scott Robinson took over, there was only one player with seven swords, and that was Reuben Thorne. Now, you might remember when Jerry Collins was around, he was the guy with the flash hair and the pyrotechnic tackles, and there was a lot of criticism when Reuben Thorne was appointed the all-black captain. He was called the invisible ghost and all these things. But Thorne really epitomises the Crusaders' attitude in that it's about performing your role to the best of your ability. It's about connecting with your teammates. I don't think the Crusaders would ever take the gamble of signing Bowden Barrett like the Blues did and allowing him to have a year off. And, of course, remember Martin Nonu played for four Super Rugby franchises, yet the Crusaders didn't want a bar of him. You have to uh, fit a certain personality trait in the Crusaders, and if you don't, it's see you later. Yeah, 100%. I, I want to stop talking about the Crusaders because otherwise I'm just going to get too frustrated. Um, so we'll roll <laughs> on to their opposition, uh, the Chiefs, and for them it was pretty much a case of deja vu in terms of their, their second-half collapse to the Highlanders at home. Uh, I mean, they were up 20 points to six, and as I earlier mentioned, you know, it was John Nadeki recollecting uh, the C.O. Tompkinson charge down that ultimately turned the game on its head and saw them score 
26 points on the trot. And so I guess like if you were to take the positives for the Chiefs from that first half an hour, they were probably the most accurate team at the breakdown that I've seen, you know, when they're on. Uh, just they were winning the collisions and just their accuracy. And for me, they were probably the only side that I saw actually compete at the breakdown. I mean, I made a mention two weeks ago when I had Matt on the podcast that what you're seeing now is practically 13 men on their feet and you probably have one guy come in as a tackler assist and then you've got the tackler on the ground as well. Whereas I think the Chiefs and hopefully Clayson McMillan are, are trying to have a point of difference. And I guess we'll probably see more of it when Lachlan Boucher comes back. But yeah, just to wrap that up, yeah, just to actually at the background. But unfortunately, um, what we've seen though is that when the Chiefs get put up uh, with their backs against the wall, they fold. So if you were to point a finger at anybody um, across that Chiefs staff or playing group, who would it be at? Well, that's a tough uh, question to answer. In terms of the Chiefs at the breakdown, you'd expect them to be ferocious in that facet of the game. Clayton McMillan himself was a very fine Maori all-black loose forward. Sam Kane, the all-black captain, is their open side flanker. Lachlan Boshia was essentially the best turnover merchant in the competition last year. And Luke Jacobson is a brutal tackler and very adept at the breakdown. But the Chiefs, much like the Hurricanes, seem to lack for genuine leadership when things turn. So when the Hurricanes lost Adi Sevilla on Sunday, the question needed to be asked, who do you turn to for guidance and composure? And there seemed to be nobody there, and I suspect that that's the same in the Chiefs. The other thing about the Chiefs, which was somewhat unfortunate for them, was the incredible misfortune in the try that Nariki scored the first uh, runaway had that ball gone out to the back line it would have been a certain five pointer for the Chiefs and at 27-6 potentially they almost certainly would have uh, romped home and won the game. Yeah no I'm 100% with you I feel like that would have been the nail in the coffin for the Highlanders because they were they were done I mean with Ash uh, or no it was Sir Tomkinson um, in the bin or either him or Ash Dixon, I'm getting a bit confused here. I haven't gone back and watched it um, as of late. But, yeah, the it's a funny old thing. Like, I made a mention again yesterday with Higgity. Like, if you actually go back and, you know, like, obviously Nariki had the game of his life um, after that first half an hour, but it, there were a couple of mistakes that went into it. And I read an article um, by Mark Reason earlier this week on Momentum, a great writer on stuff. You know, if anybody hasn't read his stuff, please go check him out. But, yeah, it's... It's it's a frustrating one for me because like again I I I like the playing group that the Chiefs have got. I don't necessarily like the style that they play, especially the way that they did under Dave Rennie. But you know like I want to see guys like Damian McKenzie thrive, but unfortunately like when you get a player like him who is a risk taker, what what I seem to find with him, especially towards the back end of last year, is that he was probably trying to do a little bit too much because his team was on the back foot. So, yeah, I'm not sure really what to say about that, um, the, the leadership that's there for the Chiefs. And I, I want to make a, a point on backtracking to, again, what I talked about with Nick last night. And I, I posed the question to him, and I'm going to be interested to get your take on this, is that Sam Kane is obviously a great player, and he came out last year and shut up a lot of critics with his displays for the All Blacks. But for me, and his track record, is he really an effective leader? Like the question has well, to be asked a... because like the All Blacks and the Chiefs last year, when the pressure was on and he was on the park and he's the one that's meant to be galvanising the troops, it didn't happen. 
and it didn't happen last Friday night. And you can't pin a game of rugby solely on one player, but when you're the captain, you do have to answer the hard questions. And Well, a lot of the modern rugby jargon now pertains to uh, leadership uh, groups. Who are the other guys in the Chiefs uh, making decisions, assigned with the rallying cry if when required? I think that uh, question needs to be asked. Also, last year, they had uh, Warren Gatland as the coach, one eye on the British and Irish Lions tour, not to mention the distraction of COVID and the challenges that that poses in addition to taking the Lions. So perhaps the coaching staff wasn't fully aligned with the purpose of the season. But I like your point about trying too hard. It's like the fat guy on the treadmill. It doesn't matter how hard you run. If you keep digesting the wrong food, you're still going to be fat. And I think for the Chiefs, a lot of the problems that they have are probably related to the personnel that they've picked in the key leadership positions. Mm. Yeah, I mean, again, there's only so much you can take away from one game. Um, but yeah, I guess it just doesn't bode well for them considering how much of a sour note they ended 2020 on. And, you know, they come into the season, they're back at home. I know they're not playing in front of any fans, but they get away to a massive lead or you know, two converted tries and then they can see 26 straight points. So, yeah, I'm not sure like where their headspace is going to be at going to the fortress that is um, Orange Theory Stadium down in Christchurch. So, yeah, why don't we roll on to our predictions for this weekend and I'll start. I mean, I've got the Crusaders winning 13+, plus. I don't think this game comes close. I think considering how ill-disciplined the Crusaders forward pack has been uh, and they're going to be pretty much kicking a dog while it's down. Um, yeah, I'm not expecting pretty things from the Chiefs, but they, they're only really playing themselves in terms of they're not going to have any expectations. So, yeah, I mean, what, what do you think is going to happen on Saturday night? It's hard to anticipate a Chiefs victory. And you're right, the Crusaders have been very disciplined in their games, but they've got some tremendous forwards who are starting to make a real impression. I was so impressed with Ethan Blackadder's display from number eight on Sunday. He's really maturing into a very fine player and the Crusaders' rolling ball is so strong and that's a major weapon for them too. I must tell you before we move on about Jonah Nariki as well. Now his display was somewhat freakish in that he bumped off Weber and he did things that you don't really see often anymore. Jonah Nariki is a Fijian. He's a product of Fielding High School and he's the subject of one of the most memorable games I've ever seen. It's a very curious thing that happens in the Manawatu, Jordan. Palmerston North Boys High School and Fielding High School are basically 20 minutes down the road from each other and yet they refuse to play first 15 rugby fixtures. They often meet in sevens because they're easily the strongest local sides in the competition but they refuse to play each other in first 15 rugby. And so the last time they actually played each other was in 2015, and that was by design, not accident. What happened was uh, Scots won the top four in 2014, and they went away to Japan to represent New Zealand in the Sanix World Youth Tournament in 2015. And in 2015, there was a pre-season tournament involving the top four Wellington schools and the top four 
Super 8 schools. Now, with Scott's absent, that left an uneven draw, seven teams instead of eight. So I got a phone call from Dave McKenzie, who was the administrator for rugby at College Sport Wellington at the time, and he was charged with organising this thing. And he said, what do I do? Because we need another team for the competition. And I said, put Fielding High School in and make them play Palmerston North Boys High School. So that's what he did. But the plot thickens. Palmerston North threw a massive tantrum over the fact that they had to play Fielding, that they had the match reassigned from Palmerston North to Napier Boys High School. And furthermore, Palmerston North, who typically honour their opposition by running out in their traditional white jerseys, ran out in the blue and white hoops against Fielding High School. And the score was 25-0 at half-time. And the Fijian on the wing, Jonah Nariki, had scored two tries. And Villamoni Karoi, the other winger, had scored a try. And Fielding won that game comfortably. I always remember that because Nariki's uh, kicked on to be in the New Zealand uh, Sevens team. And he's been brilliant for Otago. They held the Ramphilly Shield for eight defences and Nariki scored eight tries in that reign. So it's fantastic to see him playing so brilliantly at Super Rugby level. 100% and he's holding it down for the little fellas so yeah he'll always have a special place um, in my heart and he's going to go again this Sunday uh, with his team taking on the Blues and I'll start with the home team. Leo McDonald um, will be grateful obviously with the the turning of the COVID restrictions with being able to return to Auckland and actually get some proper prep underway considering that I think they were in like Whangamata or Cambridge uh, just to be able to train together um, off the back of their win in the capital. So, I mean, for me, like I mentioned, like, I, I do like the look of that Blues team. And for me, from what I saw in their game against the Hurricanes, especially in that second half, is that they showed a capability to sort of change on the move um, with running in three second-half tries. So with the likes of Alex Hodgman, TJ Fayani, and Dylan Hunt still to be thrown in the mix, do the Blues have another gear to tap into that maybe they didn't even quite show last year? I think they do. Uh, James Lay, the loosehead prop who completely destroyed Terrell Lomax in that first game. What a great acquisition he is. I wish the Hurricanes had props like him. Our props are young and are dashing and have uh, tattoos and big hair, but they're not like James Lay who spent two years slugging it out in the cold, wet, miserable conditions of Bristol, played a World Cup for Samoa, hardly has a highlights reel to register, but he gets the job done, scrummaging, mauling, all those tough things that need to be done. And Hodgman, who was integral in the Blues' success last year, won an All Blacks promotion because of it, returns offer Tunga Fussy, Patrick Tuipalotu, Hoskins Satutu, Dalton Papali'i. It's a very powerful pack, mm -hmm. the Blues, and I think that's probably going to be their method to win. I've mentioned that I'm a big fan of O'Terry Black, but there's probably one thing holding him back from the next level, and that's a lack of a running game. He's not a dashing first five like Josh Uwani or Richie Mwanga, but he's got a very controlled boot. He reads play well. And if I were the Blues approaching their match against the Highlanders, who play a very fast, whippet, almost impulsive style at times, I'd be just uh, keeping the ball in tight, playing territory and reducing it to an arm wrestle. Yeah, 100%. I think that's probably the thing that I've liked the most about Aotearoa this year is the fact that 
he hasn't tried to be anything that he's not. And I feel like a lot of guys in his position, you know, with the likes of a Bowden Barrett breathing down their neck, they, they would have felt compelled to have switched it up or, you know, tried to throw a bit more razzle into their game. But he hasn't. And, it, I mean, you look at the performance that he put in with the Hurricanes, he had a couple of nice touches, one with that cross kick and then the dummy on Barrett to feed Petrofeta for his try. So, yeah, hopefully he sticks to his guns. Um, I'm not sure whether or not he's quite, like you said, got the... I guess the game to take it to the next level but similar to you bro like, I, I feel like the Blues are probably better off keeping it in tight you know although they do have some strike power with the likes of Caleb Clark Rico Iwani um, if Fayani's back Mark Talia on the wing who was sort of an afterthought um, with the um, the unearthing of Caleb Clark last year so yeah I mean that's the thing for me like they've got the four pack to get it done or to even match the Crusaders um, on their good day and then they've actually got some strike power X power uh, X Factor out wide to score some tries out of nothing. Um, but yeah, so from there, I'll roll into the Hollanders though. And you, you talk about them playing such a fast, sort of, you know, impulsive style of game. And all of that obviously stems from Tony Brown. And I mean, he'll be happy with obviously having won their first game and to, I guess, show that backbone and ability to stick at it in that game. But I mean, it's not often that you find yourself down by two tries and have two men sent to the bin in the first half and then finish the game on the right side. But they too have a couple of players working their way back into things with the likes of Putty Putty Parkinson, Kazuki uh, Himeno still to come into play. But uh, you, you touched on the, the job that James Lay did uh, to the Hurricanes front row. Now, switching it back to the Highlanders front row, I mean, they lost Daniel Lennett Brown to a broken arm this uh, this weekend just gone. And they were already down a prop uh, with that Ainsley who came over for Australia. He suffered a season-ending ankle injury, so... What hope are the Highlanders to feed their backs front football when they're probably down to about their third or fourth string front rower on the loose head side? Well, it's a tall order, and that's exactly why I suggested that the Blues play a territorial forward-orientated game. I'd be staggered if they didn't uh, do that because you run the risk against the Highlanders of being exposed on the turnover and being outpaced if you uh, take them on in a more open, uh, vibrant uh, style. The Blues can play that uh, way, Jordan, but their uh, forward pack is arguably the strongest in the competition, so why would you deviate away from that? It was really a strange game, the Highlanders-Chiefs game. The Highlanders did everything to lose it and ended up winning it with a sensational burst of form from Jonah Nariki in particular. The Highlanders will... Uh, battle, I think, and you mentioned uh, Putty Putty Parkinson coming back. Well, he's the kind of brute force that they need in their team, but he might struggle to regain his place because this uh, young Irish uh, fellow, Jack Regan's done very well in the first fortnight of the competition, and the Highlanders seem to have this ability to attract foreign players. Ainsley is a local. In fact, he's Joe McDonnell's son, the old all-black prop, but he's come back from the Western Force, and who could ever forget James Haskell and Fumanaki Tanaka's spells mm. in Dunedin, they were extremely popular and effective. In fact, uh, Haskell uh, took a pay cut and was being uh, paid below the minimum wage in New Zealand to play rugby in uh, Dunedin. It sounds like a miracle, doesn't it? Mm. But uh, it was a fantastic uh, display by uh, James Haskell a couple of years ago. Yeah, 100%. Now, yeah, I, I, I guess just for me, it, it will be interesting for the Blues because I feel like this is an opportunity for them to show their growth as a team. Now, it's very easy to, I guess, get caught up in 
try and play that Resley style when you do have, like I, like I mentioned, Caleb Clark, Riku Iwani, Mark Talia, Pedro Fitter, you know, running it from everywhere on the pitch. But for me, like you said, if they can take it to the Highlanders up front and not get, I guess, too excited, you know, say if they do build, uh, you know, a, a decent lead um, in the early stages, you know, that will show me that they have the maturity and I guess the wits about them to, you know, just punish teams if they aren't repelling them in certain areas. Does that make sense? You know, like, you know how, like, you know, whenever a team is putting another team to the sword and, and then they get probably a little bit too sloppy with it and they try and do things that they wouldn't typically be doing if they weren't ahead on the scoreboard. But, like, what you see from the likes of the Crusaders is that, you know, they will, they will just keep kicking to the corner. They don't give a shit about the score. If they, just, if they know they can score rolling more tries, they will do that bang, 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 bang. And so, like you said, I feel like the, the Blues had the, the ability to really do this Highlanders team up front considering the injuries that they've had. But whether or not they do that for the full 80 minutes, um, I guess we'll just have to wait and see, right? I agree with uh, you, uh, Jordan. That has to be the pathway for the Blues. And uh, Leon McDonald seems to have installed that kind of mentality. They actually changed their plan considerably in the first game against the Hurricanes. They were down inexplicably at half-time, despite the home team being reduced to 14. Geordie Barrett kicked those two exceptional penalty goals. They were knocking on frequently, despite occasionally breaking down the flanks. But the very great teams are often decided by the biggest gap between their best and worse. And you know I'm doing this uh, project with the uh, Black Ferns, and how's this for a story in uh, ruthlessness? In uh, 1996, the Black Ferns were playing the USA in a test match, and it was 86-3 with a minute to go, and the USA scored a try, which made it 86-8. And the rule in the Black Ferns at that time was that every point conceded was an extra Henny Muller at training. So three Henny Mullers became eight Henny Mullers, and the captain, Leonardine Simpson-Brown, who's uh, Victor Simpson's sister, Victor Simpson, the great all-black from Gisborne, who played in that Ramfilly Shield-era Canterbury side between 82 and 85, she got the girls together in the huddle and tore them a new one and said, if you don't charge down this kick, we're going to be doing 10 Hemi Mullers. And so they charged down the kick and they only did eight Henny Mullers. And that's the kind of uh, mentality that I'd like to see from the Blues because I think their pack is the best in the competition. They've got a maturing first five, and they've just been given the big hype from uh, the pundits, which means they'll probably unravel. But <laughs> the Blues look like the real deal, but we've been saying that since 2003. <laughs> You're not wrong there, mate. So do you want to give me your uh, your winning margin for the Blues on Sunday? Well, the Blues will win this one by 10 points, maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm predicting a similar score. I feel like if, if the rain holds out and, like we said, they, they stick to their guns and then perhaps chance their arm out wide, you know, when it's needed, I, I feel like they could really do a number on the Highlanders. But, I mean, that's the thing with, with Tony Brown and co, you, you just don't know what they have up their sleeve. And, you know, if John Nanareki can run through Sam Kane and Anton Leonard Brown, then I'm, I'm sure he's capable of running through the likes of a Harry Plummer or a Dalton Papali'i. But 
yeah, again, we'll just have to wait and see how that all unfolds, mate. So, yeah, we'll wrap that up there. Again, great to have you back on the show and then get you back again um, next Monday when we're doing our recap. And until then, my friend, stay well and hopefully we get two awesome games of footy on Saturday and Sunday. Peace out.